0: Our scripture lesson today is the earliest writings in the New Testament. Uh, it's known as First Thessalonians chapter one verses one to seven. Let's share in God's good word together. To the Church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that He has chosen you. In spite of persecution, you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. We are people of the light. You and I, people of the light, and light is meant to shine in the darkness. Not just when things are easy and bright, a flashlight doesn't do you much good in the noonday sun, but light is meant to shine in the darkness. And these have been difficult days for many people coming out of the pandemic and uh, through hardships and through divisions all through the world. uh, This is a time where we are meant to shine for God. Our core values here at Acts 2 are simply these. We welcome all, we love authentically, and we let our light shine. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next number of weeks in this new sermon series, People of the Light. So let's get started. In week one, we are looking at how we're going to let our light shine. Uh, But it's hard to know what to make of these letters uh, unless we know the context with which they're written. This letter is probably the earliest writing of all the New Testament. And this letter is addressed to new faithful Gentile believers facing social pressure and persecution but remind you, it is a letter. It's a letter. In the same way that you would write a letter to a certain person in a certain place at a certain time or maybe an email today or a text, we're only getting one side of the conversation. And so it's not an exact science of how we read letters. Uh, you've got to kind of read between the lines. And, and the people that Paul is writing to, he had been with them just a few months before. Um, he was there about three or four months And so he's left them, Uh, he's gotten a report back from Timothy, and he's about to write back to them. And what he finds out, and what he's known firsthand, is that they faced persecution to turn back to the life from which they had come. They were used to living how they wanted to, to believe whatever they wanted to, whenever they wanted to, and to just kind of live however they wanted to. And Paul comes in and tells them there's a new, better way to live, a way to live for God, a way of peace and joy and eternal life in Jesus Christ because of the resurrection. And so the first letter starts out like this. Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in and was his custom, and on three Sabbath days argued with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this is the Messiah, Jesus, who I'm proclaiming to you. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous. And with the help of some ruffians in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. Now this is the one and only time we ever see the name Jason in the entirety of the Bible. And so they go to Jason's house and... and They just attack it. And when they could not find them, uh, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities shouting, these people have been turning the world upside down. And they've come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. I feel bad for Jason. He's just letting people in his house. And now he's uh, been arrested and, and he's brought before the authorities. And he is having a hard time because he was being kind to strangers. He was helping another Christian brother out. Maybe you found yourself in that same place, or you've been afraid to say the right thing, the true thing, or to do a dangerous thing by hosting and helping someone that, uh, you know, if you do that, it might get you into trouble. So, Jason is in, in deep weeds, as we say around here, and they are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, they say, saying that there is another king named Jesus. Yes, there is another king. His name is Jesus. And the problem was that in a place like Thessalonica, Rome was very important to them. Rome was a great benefactor to their city. Uh, It was a port city, and the city that the Via Ignatio ran straight through, and this was the first time that the gospel was coming into Europe. Uh, And because of Romans' influence, uh, the people of Thessalonica really were worried that if they, you know, Rome found out that they were. Guys like Paul were saying there's another king named Jesus that they might cut him off or, or might come send their troops in because Thessalonica was one of the few free cities um, that didn't actually have to hold troops there in their city and, and keep them overnight. I would also um, remind us that a few slides back, uh, we saw that Paul stayed there three Sabbath days. And so some scholars believe that Paul was really only in Thessalonica for about three weeks and then he was off. Other scholars put him there about three or four months. In any case, it wasn't long, but he did good work and he shared the good news of Jesus. And there were many there who received it and their whole lives were changed. And that city was changed and ultimately the whole world changed for Christ. So let's go to the map and see Paul's missionary journey. He starts down here in Antioch, which is just north of the Holy Land. Jerusalem is going to be down here off of the screen. And he's going to go from Antioch over to Derby, over to Lystra, And he's going west this whole way, and it's going to be the first time the gospel's ever gotten to Europe. He's actually going to go all the way to Ephesus, which is now modern-day Turkey, uh, Selchuk. Then he's going to go north up to Troas and all the way over to Philippi. And just 90 miles southwest of Philippi is Thessalonica. That is a long way for Paul to travel. And the book of Acts, written by Luke, uh, Luke, Acts, chapters 1 and 2 of the same story, um, says it like this. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Well, why did the believers send Paul and Silas off to Berea? Because they were attacking them. They attacked them in Philippi. They fled to Thessalonica. They stayed at Thessalonica. They attacked Jason's house and they fled to Berea. Paul was on the move. His faith was always on the edge of costing him his life. And so I want to show you how what happens next. So we, we're here at Thessalonica now, and he's going to come over here to Berea, still on land. And then he's going to hop a ship, and he's going to come all the way down to Athens, which is going to be right here, just east of Corinth. And he's going to be in Athens for a bit, and then he's going to stay in Corinth about a year and a half. So when Paul couldn't return to Thessalonica because they would kill him, he sends Timothy there to help the Christians. Because as a church planter myself, I know that once you pour into people and you love them and you're their pastor, you wonder how they're doing. And so he was worried about them. He was pretty anxious. And you can see this in his writings. He wanted to know that they were okay and that they were standing firm and that the gospel was really going to take off. And if he'd only been there three weeks, that would be quite remarkable. And even if only three or four months, that is a quick turnaround uh, to start a church. And remember, the church is the people. It's not a building. There aren't little churches in terms of buildings running around. It's the people of God on the move. And so this is how Paul recounts it. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we decided to be left alone in Athens, right there by Corinth. And we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker for God in proclaiming the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you. That's why Timothy went. So that he could strengthen and encourage the church there. For the sake of your faith, so that no one would be shaken by these persecutions. But Timothy has just now come to us from you. So Paul um, in Corinth, Athens area, he sends Timothy back all the way up to Thessalonica. Timothy does encourage them. And now Timothy has come back And is talking to Paul about what he found. And Paul was ecstatic. He almost couldn't believe it. He says he's brought us the good news of your faith and love. It actually did stick. The church is thriving and doing great work there. He has told us also that you always remember us kindly and long to see us just as we long to see you. So Paul stays in Corinth about 18 months. And there he writes this first letter back to the Thessalonians. And these Thessalonians, they just refuse to give up. They refuse to give up in the face of criticism and even persecution. And friends, the church today, you and I, we can learn from this. Because here's the truth of the matter. Everyone is criticized. Everyone. You've been criticized. I've been criticized. You don't know a person on the planet that hasn't been criticized. And we have to learn how to deal with this. What do we do? When people say mean things about you? What do you do when people lie about you? What do you do when people are trying to undo the very work that you've done? Well, we've got a lot to learn from the church in Thessalonica. How did the church in Thessalonica respond? Well, the scripture says they responded with faith, with love, with steadfastness, and hope in Jesus. In verses 2 and 3 it says this, We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. These folks were faithful in the midst of it and labor of love. They loved people even when they didn't love them back. And steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't some, you know, pie in the sky hope. It was hope in Jesus, the resurrected one, the one that you and I know today, the one that's changed the world forever. And the first thing they remembered, Paul says is that they were loved by God. That changes everything. When you remember you're loved by God, you have no worries. You have no fears. You're going to be with God in this life and the next. Even your death does not stop your relationship with God. It continues forever. So Paul writes in verse 4, For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God. He is stressing that they're no longer alone. They are loved by God. And that God they know through Jesus Christ, that He has chosen you that God has chosen you and we know that God had chosen them because of the fruits coming out of their life. They've said yes to God. And if you've said yes to God, you are one of God's chosen people. You are one of the ones that are here to bring heaven to earth to do the work of the Lord here on the earth. And so the early church responded to criticism with joy in spite of great suffering. You know, one of the things that kind of drives me crazy is people that always have a bad day. They're waiting for a circumstance to make them happy or let them have a little joy. Oh, I would be happy except for this. Oh, I would have been happy. I would have liked the meal except for that. I would have liked the movie except for this. You know, there was somebody in the front row that sneezed. Oh, I would have liked this or I would have liked that. I would have liked the worship service, but, you know, the, the music's too loud or the communion's too stale or it, whatever it is. I, I would have been happy, but that's not, that's not our faith. And that's not what's been handed on to us. We are to be people of joy all the time, even in the midst of great suffering. And so it continues in verses 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us, Paul says, and of the Lord. For in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And Achaia is just another word for Corinth. Uh, The area around Greece. And Macedonia is the big area that surrounds Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital city of that larger area. These people were examples. Paul lifts them up for that day and we can lift them up for this day. That they were people who knew what they believed. They knew why they believed it and they lived it out. Even if it would cost them their life. So that's what they did. What did Paul do in the face of criticism? What do you do? In the face of criticism. Now, I think this is very difficult to do, but I, I know when people attack me or criticize me, uh, it, it, there's a part of me that just wants to kind of do that back, you know, give a witty sort of cutting response. Um, but that's not very pastoral and that's not what God would have me do. What we're called to do is to tell the truth. Tell the truth, not to attack back. So Paul simply answers each critique with facts, not attacks. Will you say that with me? Our life is to be facts, not attacks. And so there are going to be a number of things underneath the next lines in this letter that is going to give us a clue of what people were saying about Paul. And that's come back to him. And he's not going after them. He's simply saying, remember, this is the truth about me. He says, you yourselves know. Don't don't believe everything somebody tells you. right? And a lot of things that we all hear, um, it's just talk. It's just gossip. So you yourselves know. He's saying, you know me, you know my character, you know what I'm doing, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. You're still going. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, there were some people that said, you know, Paul was in jail. Paul must be a crook. If he's, if he's been to jail, if he's been arrested, he must be a bad dude. He, he, just, he just must be. Because if the authorities are after him, that must make him bad. They wouldn't go after him for no reason. And so because he had trouble in Philippi, other people said, well, then of course he's going to be trouble here. As you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. For our appeal, Paul says, does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery. There are people that said, oh, Paul's just tricking you. He's lying to you. This isn't true. Uh, And he just wants your money. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of the gospel the good news of Jesus, even so we speak not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery. There were people saying that Paul simply were taking people out and and lifting them up and, you know, flattering them in in ways that weren't true in order to have influence over them. He says, no, no, no. I wasn't saying nice things to you. Uh, for greed. Matter of fact, I, I've got a job. I'm, a, I'm either a tent maker or a leather worker and, and you know I have a trade and you've seen me work my trade. I'm not asking anything of you. I'm not, I'm not flattering you to try to get you to give me money. No. Nor did we seek praise from mortals. I'm not doing this to make a big name for myself. I'm here to spread the good news of Jesus who is the Savior of the world. But it was that exact thing that the people were afraid of because The head of Rome, of the entire Roman Empire, was considered a king and even a god. And so if Jesus is king, that's in conflict with whoever is the leader of Rome at the time. And that would change from time to time, whether from you or from others. So how do we handle criticism today? We can be like Paul, and we can just tell the facts and not attack. Um, But here's the other thing that's hard about criticism Criticism can be a gift if we allow it to help us grow and mature. Now, I hate to say that out loud because I know many of you may have lots of criticism to send my way uh, because you're ready for me to grow and mature. But it's hard on us, isn't it? When somebody critiques you or points out things, that can be hard. But it's also necessary. It's important. Friends, we all need feedback. We don't always like it. Matter of fact, we rarely like it. Maybe we never like it. But we do always need it. We need somebody to to say to us, you know, Mark, I've noticed that if you haven't eaten for a while, you're pretty cranky. Or, you know, I think you need a nap. Did you get any sleep last night? We need our family and our friends to help take care of us and be a mirror to help us see what we don't see very well for ourselves. It's for our good. It's for our health. Matter of fact, Adam Hamilton, um, who first preached this series a number of weeks ago at Church of the Resurrection, said it like this. He says, if you're not accepting criticism, then you're probably not growing. Let me say that again. If you are not accepting criticism, then you're probably not growing. One of the things I get most excited about is when people on our team are able to take correction well, because I know they're going to grow and develop and be wonderful leaders in our church. Someone that can't take correction, there's really not much you can do. Because they've already told you they're not willing to grow. Uh, they're going to have the same faith they had whenever they stop growing, whenever they stop being open, whenever they stop being open to new ideas, whenever they stop learning. They simply are stuck when they are no longer willing to receive critique. So what do you do when you get a critique? Because it can be very painful. When you get a critique, ask God, what can I learn from this? We don't have to get defensive. We don't have to defend ourselves. We can say, well... What is there a part of this that's true? Is there any of this that's true? And most of the time there is. It may not be the way they said it. It may not be as bad as they said it. It may not be as big as they said it. But often there's a little piece of truth to that. And maybe we're just not aware of how our actions have affected others, the way it made them feel, or, or the way they responded, or, or the way that looked to them. And it's a real gift to us uh, if someone is brave enough and honest enough to share that gently and with love. When somebody says something critical to you, uh, or they let you know how your actions have affected them, we can actually say, I'm sorry. You, you don't have to know everything about it, but we can be sorry. We can, we can grieve the fact that we caused someone else harm or pain. We, we, you know, Six of the biggest words in our life is, I am sorry, and you are forgiven. We have to be able to say those six words. And if if you're not ready to say, I'm sorry, you could say, well, thank you for helping me learn. Thank you for helping me see that. Thank you for giving me perspective um, that I don't have. Thanks for holding up a mirror to me to let me see uh, the way I'm presenting to you or to others. Proverbs 15.1 says this, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I found this to be true in my life. Um, when people are upset with something in the church or with me, um, I invite them to come see me. Let's talk it out. What's going on with you? And, and oftentimes, um, I do my best simply to have a gentle answer. Um, like, well, tell me what's going on. I can see how that could be frustrating, or I can see how that could be upsetting to you. Or, no, no, that's not what the church meant by that at all. And the thing is, when I come in gentleness, or when somebody else comes to you in gentleness, uh, or you come to me in gentleness... People are all ears because we can say and do a lot together if first we know we're loved by God and loved by one another. That mutual respect and honor and love goes a long way in helping the conversations keep going. You know what stops the conversation? What doesn't keep it going? Insults. Whether it's on Facebook or on Twitter or someplace else, when you start trading insults, you're in trouble. It won't end well for you or the person you're going after. First Peter says it like this. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse. But on the contrary, repay evil with a blessing. Repay with a blessing. Bless those that persecute you, Jesus says. So don't do that. And I know that many of you, you're really good about that. You've gotten off of social media altogether. And, and you're just kind of like, I'm, I'm shutting down. I'm not going to have anything to do with any of that. Well, that's good to a point. But if you're not careful, if you're like me, you want to shut down altogether. And please, friends, don't do that. The world needs you to be the light of the world. God has made you to be the light of the world. Don't shut down. Don't hide. Be the light that God has made you to be. Brene Brown, who is a shame and vulnerability researcher, uh, says it like this. She understands that want to, that, that natural thing where we all want to just close up and not say a word because if I say we're going to wear masks, I got people saying, well, I'm not coming if you're going to make me wear a mask. I say, well, we're not going to wear masks. And people say, well, I'm not coming if you're not wearing masks. I go, oh, okay. I said, "Well, you know, I, I say, well, it's really important um, what happens uh, with people of color. And they say, well, you're anti-police. Well, no, I, I care a lot about the police and, and we need to support the police. And then people say, well, you can't do that because now, now you're against people of color. Well, no, no, no no, 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 no. We can say the truth and not shut down. We can do it without insulting somebody. We can bless both those that bless us and bless those who curse us. We can bless people to the left of us and we can bless people to the right of us. And that is our Christian responsibility. And Brene Brown says this, perfect and bulletproof are seductive. Yes, they are. But they don't exist in the human experience. Perfect and bulletproof are seductive. And there's a lot of smart people in our church. You're probably one of them. And you know that one of the best ways not to have any problems is to be perfect. Well, how's that working for you? Well, there's a lot of anxiety in our world. Trying to please people. Trying not to have anybody mad at us. Trying to choose our words so carefully that we don't get, you know, just lit up on social media or canceled by the culture or have people go to any number of 200 other churches in the area. It's a a real thing. It's seductive. But it doesn't exist. Friends, if you try to live your life without being criticized for anything, you're dead already. You don't have a life. All the creativity, all the joy, it gets just sucked right out of your life. When you're afraid to say anything to anybody, you don't have a life. You're already dead. Because the way God understands life, it's not just whether you're breathing or not. It's whether you're living into the fullness of what God has for you. A full, joyful, loving life. There's a famous quote that is attributed often to Albert Hubbard. And it says this, The only way to avoid criticism is to do nothing. To say nothing. And to be nothing. You weren't created to be nothing. You are an incredible something. You're beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully made, says the Lord. Don't ever forget that. You are loved and you're beautiful in God's eyes. You are one of God's children. So here's an important question. What prices are we already paying when we shut down and disengage? What are you missing? What joy, what life, what vistas are no longer open to you because you simply will not share who you really are with anybody? It's time that we face the truth about who we are, whose we are, and how we live. And yes, sometimes the critique is true, although painful at the time. And and we need to be open to that. But sometimes you're going to do the right thing for the right reasons at the right time, and you're going to get beat up for it. It hurts my heart when I see videos, um, whether in the news or on the web, of, of people being beaten. Our Asian brothers and sisters being beaten by bullies and bigots and racists. And to have no one come to their aid, that people are so afraid to get involved or, or to have somebody say something negative to them that people are being beaten in broad daylight in the middle of the street. And people will not step in. Friends, yes, to do what Christ calls you to do may get you beat up. It's always been that way. Paul says, Look at my life. Five times. I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one because Rome knew that if they beat you 40 times, you're going to die. So they would back it up one to 39. Jesus had the same thing happen to him before his crucifixion. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received the stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold, cold, and naked somebody asked Paul hey how was your day (laughs) and that is his answer Paul the writer of the majority of the New Testament he doesn't mince words he doesn't hold back he says look if you're going to live full out for God it's going to cost you it's going to cost you and we shouldn't expect anything different today particularly in a country where less than half of the population is now involved in a faith we are the minority position now friends We've got to learn how to shine brightly in the darkness, to love where there's hate. Adam Hamilton says it like this. He says, it's okay to disagree, but we don't have to hurt each other when we do. Of course, we're going to disagree about things. But we don't have to hurt each other when we do. We want to make sure that we're not the ones giving the lashes. We want to make sure we're not the one beating other with rods or with our words or with our actions or, or with our withdrawal from our resources uh, or our time. Or affection, And hear this, friends. Every leader in the scriptures was criticized. From Moses to Isaiah to Jeremiah, Obadiah, Jesus, John, Peter, James. If they're mentioned in the Bible, they're criticized. They're persecuted. Many of them killed, martyred. Every leader. You remember when Moses, after 400 years of slavery, leads the people out of slavery into the promised land, what do they say? Oh, we, you know, we, we got to get rid of this guy. It would be better for us to you know, have died in Egypt. And friends, it's so easy to not take a leadership mantle. It's so easy not to serve or not to help because you don't want to be criticized. But with all that I am, we are people to be in relationships. So don't give up on relationships. Don't do it. I know it's tempting, but, but don't do it. Hang in there. It is worth it. I was really shocked this week and, and saddened to find that in a nationwide survey, nearly one in three, 27% of adult Americans are estranged from a close family member. Our cancel culture is such that if you don't make me happy, if it's not going my way, I just withdraw. We are wealthy enough and have enough resources enough that you know, In the same ways that people were in the first century, we, we've got so much more that we don't really need them. We can have so much money that we can have a house and the person we don't want to be with can have their house. That wasn't necessarily true in Jesus' day. It's not true in most of the world. And you know why people simply didn't want to be with their other family members, their, their children or their parents or their siblings or their spouse? The biggest factor is this sense of individualism that prioritizes personal happiness. Well, they didn't make me happy. Friends, it is no one's job to make you happy. You are here to serve and to shine as light in the darkness, to bring heaven to earth, to make a difference with your life, to serve, not to expect everybody to serve you. We are to be people of the way, of the towel, who wash feet and feed the hungry, clothe the naked, And praise God and lift up the name of Jesus. And so our action steps for this week. With all that I am, I want to implore you, do not shut down. Do not give up. Keep going, friends. Keep going. And I know it's so easy, so easy to want to just stay in bed or stay away. You know, COVID's given us a a lot of room uh, to not interact with folks. And and there's plenty of reasons not to. I'm, I'm not unaware of those things. But I want to remind you of the great words of Theodore Roosevelt from 1910. He says, friends, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. It's easy to be a critic. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming." greatly for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives within us, who will protect us and bless us and carry us from this life to the next. And here's the thing. It's not just that we're criticized sometimes. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we're the critic. Sometimes we're the one on the sideline poking fun at others just because they're doing their job, just because they're having a hardship. So let's practice for heaven. Because there's no criticism in heaven. There's no rejection in heaven. And so as a way to prepare your heart and soul for the rest of eternity, don't say anything critical this week. Not one thing. And I don't mean just for an hour. I don't mean just for a day. I mean all week. Don't let yourself say anything critical. And if you do, mark it down, be aware of it, repent of your sin, and try again. We we are people who are not going to be critical, and we're people who are not going to hurl judgments at people all week. Certainly not our brothers and sisters. Because, here's the thing, Jesus says this, do not judge, so that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Friends, this is for your own good. Jesus says, you you can't judge because you're actually condemning yourself. And finally, dare to show up and be seen. Let yourself be seen. Let ourselves be seen in the plural. Let the church shine for Jesus Christ. Let your light shine. Let our light shine for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us.